The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So I'm going to start this morning with a question. Has your life gone the way you expected? Pretty simple question, but kind of a big idea. I want you to think back to your teenage years, think back to high school. When you dreamed about what your life would be like as an adult, um, think about um, what you imagined it would be. Have things happened according to the plan that you had for yourself when you started making plans for the future? I think it's probably true that very few people in this church, um, or or even just in the world in general, would say that their life has gone exactly the way that they planned it. Maybe family hasn't looked the way you thought or hoped that it would. Maybe your career isn't where you expected it to go. Maybe you even had ministry aspirations. Maybe your great desire was to see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, um, expand into new places, um, to, to be involved in the work of building up the church, and those plans have not come to fruition. I think whatever it is, seeing plans fall through is an experience that almost all of us can identify with. The Word of God isn't silent on this. Um, If you look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, and you don't don't need to turn to these places, but Solomon says the following words, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. A few chapters later, in 1921, uh, Solomon will say that Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And again, the next chapter, 2024, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? You flip over to the the New Testament, to the book of James. Um, It's sometimes been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, but um, it kind of fit nicely with the verses I selected this morning. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Caleb pointed out that uh, you almost can't have a conversation with Josh Stiles where you make plans and he doesn't say, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. We'll do that if the Lord wills. Um, So he's internalized this verse. We can follow his example. It seems that a common thread runs through the whole Bible. We are not in control of the outcomes of our life. Instead, it's the Lord who decides outcomes. So, how does this inform the story of the acts of the Holy Spirit um, as he's establishing Christ's church um, throughout the world? Over the past few weeks, we've seen some of the pivotal events take place in the history of the church. The first church council, the, the Jerusalem council, I don't know if you remember from a few weeks ago, convened and issued an important decision. They made it clear for all time that the gospel was good news for Gentiles in addition to the Jews, in addition to the Jews, The salvation that was purchased by Christ's blood could be had by faith in Christ Jesus alone without converting to Judaism first and observing all the attendant laws. 
After delivering that news, um, Paul, he goes back to his church in Antioch, uh, delivers the news of the council's decision. Paul enlists Silas to revisit several of the churches that he had helped to plant uh, in his first missionary journey, and they go about delivering that same message. Uh, Gentiles, be at ease. Like, you have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Along the way, they meet Timothy, whom Paul recruits for gospel ministry, based on the testimony of brothers at uh, Lystrum and Iconium. Um, and together, this group of men finished delivering the news of the council's decision to the churches, um, and then begin to, uh, or they do this in order to sort of provide an inoculation against false teaching, teaching coming from the Judaizers. I uh, think this is kind of a good reminder that uh, sometimes, you know, when we hear about the debates of theologians, uh, we hear about the debates of denominational leaders, uh, we kind of roll our eyes and maybe sigh a little bit and say, you know, does it really matter as much as you seem to be um, you know, getting all like, um, you know, frustrated and um, uptight about it. And I, th I think this is a good reminder that while it's possible, not all of them, you know, matter as, as much as they, they seem to make out that they matter. Um, a lot of times they're very necessary for the joy and the health of the body of Christ. Having completed their visits to previously planted churches um, and strengthening them with that news, Paul, Silas, and Timothy now look towards those places that have not heard the gospel. And they're thinking, where should we go from here? So let's take a look at today's passage again, beginning in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Uh, could you put that map up on the screen? Okay, I can't see the screen very well, but I kind of tried to memorize um, some key features. It may be hard to read all the names, um, especially if you are in the, uh, the cheap seats, so to speak. Uh, but I think there's kind of a, a yellow blob in the middle um, a green blob to its, its right side, um, and a purple blob kind of up above those yellow and green blobs. Is that, do I remember that correctly? That's kind of in the upper, Daniel's giving me the thumbs up. Um, so, okay, so, you know, when they say they're going through Phrygia and Galatia, uh, that is a path that's kind of on the border between the yellow blob and the green blob, um, if you can't read the names. Um, so they're, they're moving up along that line, uh, they've been told not to go into Asia as kind of a, a point of clarification. Asia is not uh, what we think of as Asia. Asia is maybe what we think of as Asia Minor, and even maybe just sort of the western portion of that. Um, it's modern Turkey. Uh, so they've been forbidden to go straight into the heart of the Yellow Blob. They're kind of making their way up on that border, um, and then they get to uh, the Purple Blob, Bithynia. Something kind of unusual happens here. Paul and Silas and Timothy are eager to see the gospel um, go into to new places, eager to see more people um, be received into the body of Christ. Um, but as they consider where they would like to begin, the Holy Spirit uses some means to communicate you know, very clearly in like a very definite way that they're not to go into Asia. They're not to go into the yellow blob, like right into the heart of it. 
God is going to lead them in a different direction. He's going to bring them somewhere else. In obedience, they skirt the region of Asia and end up a little north of that in the area called Mysia. Um, and Mysia is sort of the, the top, top sliver of the yellow blob. Here they find themselves needing to make a decision again. And again, when they settle on a direction, the spirit of Christ intervenes to redirect them away from where they're heading. A spirit of Christ is another way of referring to the Holy Spirit it reinforces that the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity whose direction and will are the same as Christ. Um, so when you hear Spirit of Christ, think Holy Spirit and remember that one mind is like one purpose um, with God the Father and God the Son. Reading on in verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, two more remarkable things happen in the span of a few verses. Uh, first, um, after all the uncertainty of, um, you know, okay, we want to go here, but God says no. We want to go here. Again, God is, is pulling us away from that. Um, the Spirit is finally giving them sort of a positive direction. Um, they, he's brought them to Troas through um, kind of the don't go there, don't go there, bringing them on a straight course. Um, and now he's saying, okay, the reason I've brought you here, the mission I have for you um, is to go into Macedonia. And that vision presented through the, uh, Macedon the vision of the Macedonian man um, asking him to come and help them. Um, the second remarkable thing um, is that a third-person description of events switches to a first-person one. And if y'all remember back to uh, grammar class, third person is, is anytime the author is saying, they went here, he did this, and then a first-person description is, I came alongside them, I went with them, we went together, et cetera, et cetera. Like anytime the author is, is included in uh, the description of, of you know, who's who things are happening to. That transition indicates that Luke, Luke who wrote the whole book of Acts, um, has now met these brothers and will journey with them and collaborate with them for a time. So I want to take a, a closer look at the, what the meaning is of the Holy Spirit's um, intervention here. Um, this can be a sometimes controversial topic, and I'm truthfully a little apprehensive um, about broaching it. Um, it's hard to speak about events like those described here without addressing how the gifts of the Holy Spirit operate both in the first century and today. Suffice it to say, I don't see a strong case for saying that the gifts of the Holy Spirit cease before the Lord returns. That's kind of a loaded statement, um, and we don't really have time to unpack all of it here. Um, but I will say that the prophetic direction that Paul, Silas, and Timothy received to lead them away from some places and towards others aren't typical experiences for the body of Christ. The frequency we see them recorded in Acts is not the frequency we will expect to see them in our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, some commentators have speculated uh, that these visions uh, and miraculous gifts are most common in Frontiers missions. Uh, Frontiers missions are anytime the gospel is being brought to a place uh, that hasn't been preached before or where there's not a 
a gospel witness presently. That may be why there are so many stories like this in the book of Acts. It may be that the initial explosion of the gospel through Judea, Samaria, and now towards the ends of the earth is accompanied by the Holy Spirit and making his intentions very plainly known. Whatever the case, the larger truth that's clear from this account is that the advance of the gospel is not principally a man-directed project. God is intimately involved in the how and the when and the where of the growth of his kingdom on earth. Man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So, you know, whether it's a prophetic word from the Lord or even a simple circumstance that redirects saints away from a course or a destination they expected to go towards, the Spirit of God knows all of our paths before we walk down them. And by His grace, He moves us wherever He wills. So that's what we see happening here in this passage. The Holy Spirit has charted this course for Paul's group, bringing them to Troas to then launch them toward the city and the people that God has appointed to hear the gospel next. There's a cap on. Why does God work this way? I'm not sure. He doesn't say. In case you're wondering, this is not one of those Stanley um, Why does God work this way? I'm not sure. He doesn't say. It's not emotionally satisfying, but there's times, many times, when God appears to operate in the framework that Isaiah describes in his book. Um, if you could put up the, the scripture from Isaiah, this is from chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. And it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thinking um, is just a little bit different from ours. Or I say a little bit different. God's thinking is very different from ours. Um, it's as different as the ground is from the sky, um, different as um, the east is from the west. I mean, they're, they're at very, very different places, um, and so we don't always understand the things that God is doing as he's doing those things. I think the best answer is, is circumstances like these require us to trust that God knows all of our ways, he knows, and he also knows the plans that he has for us. Plans both for our blessing and for the furthering of the borders and boundaries of his kingdom. He knows, and he, he not only knows, but he cares about the details and ambitions of our lives, even the ambitions to do great works in his name. If in his providence he delays or thwarts those ambitions, then the objective rock-solid truth is that his wisdom exceeds our own. His care for us is greater than our own. His better plans will result in better ends for all those who call in his name. We are called to trust him. We're called to trust him. I think it's worth noting the response of Paul, Silas, and Timothy as well. Um, I'm not sure how many of you know this about me, but one of the things I hate most is a change of plans. I hate it. It galls me when I have expectations like about just, just simple stuff. Um, what's happening today? 
This is not like the big things of like, oh, I, you know, I thought I was going to get this job. It was more just the things of, okay, I'm going to get to work on the lawn today. Oh, but, you know, now there are kind of household things like that are taking my attention, and that frustrates me. I don't even like picking restaurants. Um, I'll tell you a story about my uh, 30th birthday. If I calculated this correctly, this would be around when Clark Pegram was entering middle school. So, um, on my 30th birthday, um, I, I wanted to do something kind of special, you know, 30, nice round number. And um, so I, I wanted to pick a restaurant that I had never been to before. Um, and um, so I picked a restaurant. I, I, I forget what it was even called. Um, but it wasn't a chain, um, and I'd never been there. And we tell people the plan. We're going to this restaurant. And someone in the party says, oh, I've been there. It's not that good. Um, I'm like, okay, all right. Think of another place, um, another place that is not a chain, um, not um, a place that I've been to before. And again, someone else is like, oh, I mean, it's, it's pretty expensive. I just, I just think it's a good choice. Um, and I think that happened a third, third time, maybe a fourth. It was a while ago, so I don't remember. Um, but we ended up eating my 30th birthday dinner at Longhorn Steakhouse. Um, and I was, I was a little peeved by that. Um, I would rather eat gruel than to say out loud what I would like to eat, that I would like to eat at such and such a place, only to have the folks I'm eating with do the kind of wrinkle your nose thing and say, uh, I'm not sure it's the best choice. When plans fall through, um, I'm tempted, and I often succumb to the temptation, to grumble. My heart says, fine, I'll just sit here. Or, I don't have any desire to do this other thing, and I'm going to sulk my way through it. Not so with these servants of God. The direction of Paul and Silas and Timothy may change, but the mission stays the same, and they continue pressing forward into it. You know, it, it takes us all of about a minute to read the account of their journey from Phrygia and Galatia all the way to Troas. Um, the tension that, you know, would kind of arise in a story like that about the Spirit forbidding them from evangelizing Asia and turning them away from Bithynia is resolved almost as soon as we read it. However, for them, um, these verses encompass a journey of something like two to 400 miles, depending on who's commenting on it and how they're measuring the starting points and what path they think they took. If they were moving as fast as they could, they might be able to cover about 20 miles a day on foot, um, and at least, at least that's what Google says. Um, however, not every stretch of the journey would be made at the same pace, um, and presumably, they would be stopping along the way, um, preaching the gospel, um, to those people that, you know, they had an opportunity to. So I'm guessing this leg of the trip would take two or three months. And all the while, these men are trusting God until he tells them why they weren't to go to Asia and Bithynia. And they're being faithful to the call that he has placed on their lives. I mentioned there were two notable things. Um, the second notable thing in these verses with the ever-so-quiet introduction of Luke to the narrative um, it's almost a little funny the way he kind of sneaks up on the reader. Um, if it were a movie, um, he would be the guy that um, kind of walks up behind you while you're talking. Um, you don't even hear him. He's so silent. Um, and then you kind of turn around and startle because he's standing right there behind your right shoulder. Um, 
I should be turning the page as I'm saying these things. Um, Luke kind of sneaks in. Uh, One second, Paul's team of three is standing around Troas, wondering what comes next. And the next second, Luke is so close to the heart of the mission that he is gripped by the same urgency as the other three in setting out to help the Macedonian man. Luke doesn't say much about himself in this book or in his gospel account. It's not clear whether this is born out of a deep humility on Luke's part or an attempt to to maintain some sort of narrative objectivity. Um, I lean towards humility, though. Um, As the book's introduction, um, back in chapter one of Acts, it doesn't really seem like he has an unbiased take when it comes to the gospel. Um, He's writing so that Theophilus um, can know all of the things that the Holy Spirit continue to do in in bringing the gospel to the nations. One big thing we know about Luke um, is that he is the only Gentile contributor to the Bible. It's kind of a fun fact. Um, Of all of the chapters of the Bible, um, all of the books, um, only Luke uh, was not a Jew. Paul will testify about Luke's godliness and Christ-likeness. When he wrote uh, his letter to the church at Colossae, uh, Paul called Luke the beloved physician. Um, He signs off the book of Philemon, identifying Luke as a peer by calling him fellow worker or co-laborer. And at one point, uh, Paul will also say that um, in his imprisonment, Luke is the only one to remain with him to give him comfort. Um, so Luke is obviously like a, a very faithful brother uh, throughout, throughout all of Scripture. This account is also the first mention of Troas and Acts. Um, so I, I'm kind of wondering if the gospel had gotten here before, um, how Luke had heard the gospel. Um, I wondered if this was even the first time that Luke had heard the gospel. In the end, I suspect that Luke was converted at some point in the past um, because Paul welcomes him to go with him to the work. Uh, So if Luke were a recent convert, I think Paul would hesitate to enlist him in a similar fashion as how he tells Timothy not to appoint new converts as elders um, in his letter to Timothy. Uh, Paul's demonstrated sort of a high bar uh, for receiving co-laborers to come with him to the work. Luke could have been converted by Christians returning to their homes from Pentecost, or he could have traveled to Troas from some other place where the church already had a foothold. doesn't really matter. Um, All that matters is that another purpose of God's providence in directing their course to Troas is revealed as the the man who's going to chronicle uh, all of these events um, meets with them and um, is enlisted in the work that they're going to. Let's continue in verse 11. Um, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. A couple more things we can glean from this passage. Um, Having been called to the country of Macedonia, Paul zeroes in on the strategic city of Philippi. It's a status as a Roman colony and its location on the Via Ignatia, uh, that's sort of an important artery of traffic for the region, um, makes it an important city where many may travel to or from and the gospel can spread throughout the region if a church is established there. However, um, when Paul sails from Troas, 
Um, he's traveling further and further away from sort of the sphere, sphere, sphere of Jewish influence. In fact, the gospel's leaving its home continent. Um, this is going to be the first time it's recorded that the gospel is preached in Europe. It's been noted before that Paul will typically, when he comes to a new town, um, Paul's first action is usually to find a synagogue, and that's where he'll begin his gospel ministry. He'll begin with um, Jews in the city. Um, and I, I think there are some reasons why, and, and maybe that'll be clear in a second. However, um, in Philippi, it looks like there wasn't a synagogue present. Um, it seems, my, my understanding is that uh, it requires a, a quorum of 10 Jewish men um, to begin a synagogue. And so the absence of a synagogue in Philippi uh, suggests that there was probably less Jews there um, than that number. It's not really clear why they went looking by the river or why they supposed that was a place of, place of prayer. Um, I suspect that the days they had spent in the city up to that point included inquiries about whether there were any people that were adherents of the Jewish faith um, there in the city. Um, and once more, in this, in this passage, we see again how the gospel elevates women. Um, I don't know if you remember back to the uh, Passion accounts, um, but it's always you know, very emphasized that uh, the first witnesses of the resurrection um, were women disciples of Jesus. Um, and so it's often said by commentators, the gospel elevates women. Um, that would not be a typical practice in the first century, um, but it elevates them to a, um, a place of equal value. Um, they are um, witnesses and you know, sisters um, in Christ um, and worthy to have their testimony recorded there. Um, in the same way, the first recorded hearers of the gospel in Europe are women who meet together to pray to the God of the Old Testament. Um, that's what worshipers of God would be, God-fearers would be. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller, seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Again, we have another uh, first. Uh, the first recorded convert in Europe is this wonderful sister Lydia. Um, and she, um, the description of her is just really precious. She's identified here as already being a worshiper of God, and I explained that that would be kind of the same as a God-fearer, um, someone who um, worships, who is a Gentile, but worships the God of the Old Testament, worships the, the God of the Bible they would have had at that time. Uh, Lydia has also come to Philippi from Thyatira, Thyatira, and Thyatira is back across the Aegean Sea um, that Paul and the others have just crossed. Um, so one way or another, she has knowledge of Yahweh. She has knowledge of the Hebrew God. So when news of the fulfillment of that true God's promises comes to her, she is ready with many of the categories and a worldview that is helpful to hearing and apprehending the gospel. And I think that's why Paul would often begin preaching um, in a synagogue, is because he could begin like from a common base of knowledge. But despite all of that, that is not the most important thing. Look back at the text. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It's the Lord who opens hearts 
to hear the gospel. It's the Lord who opens hearts to hear the gospel. Paul will talk about the conversion of the believers in Thessalonica, and that's a, a story that um, we'll read in a couple weeks in the series. Um, he uses different words, um, but has the same idea when he writes to them in 1 Thessalonians. Would you put uh, that passage up on the screen? This is 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you hear those, those words kind of echoed in this account, echoed in this passage. Um, the word comes to Lydia, or the gospel comes to Lydia, not just in words, but in power. Um, a power that converts her, a power that compels her to respond to it. Luke doesn't describe um, every conversion in Acts in this way, uh, and I, I don't think that's because it's, it's not true in some cases. I don't think the mechanics of regeneration change from here to here. I, I think it's clear from Scripture that the Lord is the one who opens the heart of everyone that ever has or ever will respond to the gospel. Um, so why does Luke make a special point of it here? It seems that the sovereignty of God in making a people for himself is at the forefront of Luke's mind in this passage. It seems that God's sovereignty, God's direction, um, God's providence um, is kind of the controlling idea for everything that's happened um, from the time they set out and were directed away from Asia, um, set out directed away from Bithynia, um, all the way up into the point um, where God um, sovereignly opens Lydia's heart to hear the word. Luke has seen um, God keep Paul from going to the left to Asia or to the right to Bithynia. If you remember that map, I mean, it, it feels like it, it's kind of curved. There were some maps that um, show it as almost a straight line um, um, up to Troas. Um, and it just seemed like an arrow where they their impulse was to go left, their impulse was to go right, um, but God, straight down the middle, brings them to Troas. Luke has seen them um, be brought to the doorstep of Europe. Um, he's seen how God appointed his own meeting with them. Um, he's seen how God has helped them to find this small gathering of God-fearers in a foreign city where few call on the name of the one true God. How can Luke help but see that it's God who changes hearts by giving eyes to hear, eyes to see and ears to hear to those appointed for salvation. Lydia responds to their message and she is baptized as a follower of Jesus. Going on in the passage, I think it appears that Lydia's character as a God-fearer um, has had such a powerful effect on the members of her household that when she believes in Jesus, that when she believes in Jesus Christ and when she tells them about that, uh, they too put their trust in Jesus as evidenced by their baptisms that follow. So they respond to the gospel. This, this woman who is provided for the household, cared for the household, um, cared for the members of the household, um, she testifies, like, I, I found, you know, the one that we've been waiting for, and um, they believe. I think this is demonstrated in the fact that they were baptized. I mean, that, that they were converted as well. God's providence is shown one more time in this passage as Lydia's conversion is followed 
by the impulse to show hospitality to these brothers in the Lord. So she provides a, a home base for them to begin to operate out of. Lydia is the very picture of what Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus is referring to uh, when he sends out the 12 apostles in Matthew 10. Um, Matthew 10, verse 11 says, In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And so Lydia provides one of those worthy homes. Lydia demonstrates her worthiness through her hospitality and the peace that comes from believing the gospel of peace. And it remains with her and permeates her household, um, even to the conversion of, of the other members of the household. So what does it all mean? What's this passage calling us to? The heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. I'll close with a few thoughts um, about how we can respond in obedience with a happy heart. Uh, friends, first of all, don't hear me saying for a moment that plans are a bad thing or plans are an unchristian thing or you know, something that the Lord calls us not to make. Make plans. Plans and planning are positive goods that the Lord uses to help us lead productive lives. Even when their initial plans were thwarted, Paul and Silas kept moving forward in planning and executing those plans. Uh, when God says, don't go to Asia, they don't say, okay, what do I do? Um, they move forward. They make new plans. So make your plans. Submit them to the Lord in prayer, seek counsel, and then execute on those plans. And always remember that those plans are contingent and subject to the absolute discretion of the only wise God. He may revise or cancel those plans when required. Number two, whether by the direction of the Holy Spirit or by simple circumstances, you are at the place the sovereign God has brought you to. What acts of faithfulness has he called you to in that place? Who has he placed around you to show the love of God to? Wherever you live, um, the Lord knows, and the, and the Lord um, sovereignly approved that, that home for you to live in. Um, who's there? What can you do? How can you be faithful? If you're in a job that is not to your, to your liking, how can you be faithful in that? Like the way that, you know, Joseph was, was faithful um, when he was sold into slavery, um, and his faithfulness, like, ultimately um, made him as, as master over his whole, or as the caretaker over his master's house, and then caretaker over the entire nation of Egypt. Point number three, the Holy Spirit opened the heart of Lydia to hear the gospel because he has chosen her to be the first convert in this place. Guys, we don't always know when or where the Lord may choose to begin a new work of expanding his kingdom to another people. However, we do know from this, this passage and others that the Lord is utterly capable of making whomever he wishes receptive to the gospel. Friends, there's a, a real encouragement in that. Um, there is someone on your heart, someone that you would desperately love, or desperately, can you desperately love? You would love to see uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ. And for whatever reason, their hard-hearted heart, their hard, sorry, their hard heart um, is resistant to, to every attempt to um, speak the gospel to them. 
The Lord can overcome that. The Lord holds hearts in his hand. Um, take encouragement from that in um, continuing to, to go to that Lord. The Lord who uh, turns missionaries from their course um, to bring them to speak the gospel um, to whomever he wants to hear that gospel. Um, the Lord who opens the hearts um, of whomever he wants to hear the gospel. Whoever it is that's um, on your mind right now, um, continue to pray for them. Continue to, to be consistent in that. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for the the word that you've given us for our encouragement, um, the word you've given us for our conviction. Um, Father, we pray that um, your spirit uh, would help uh, that word to do its work in our heart uh, today um, and throughout the week and, and for the rest of our lives. Um, Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.